Good morning and welcome to the Transatlantic Leadership Network's Next Generation Emergent Leaders in Libya podcast series. I'm your host, Jonathan Roberts, and in our third session today, I'll speak with Fatma Hashad, a legal professional. Fatma obtained her LLM in International Law from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. In the past, Fatma has worked for a private law firm as well as trained at the Omani Public Prosecution's office. She holds a bachelor's degree from Sultan Qaboos University in Muscat, Oman, where she currently resides. Fatma, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I am looking forward to hearing your thoughts today. You were one of the contributors to our recent book, Unheard Voices of the Next Generation, Emergent Leaders in Libya. And as we begin, I wonder if you might first just take a minute or two to share with us in your own terms what your book chapter was about as well as its significance. What I wrote about is the internment in the Libyan Civil War, which is basically... um, about prisoners of war in the uh, previous war since 2014 to um, 2020. What got me to write about this was actually by chance. I was looking at the news and I saw this um, article online that says the parties to the Libyan conflict have agreed on a prisoner's exchange And I found that to be very interesting and not in a good way. We're the the same country, the same people. We don't have anything that puts us apart in Libya. But somehow we found ourselves in a war and we are exchanging prisoners. And I found that like very interesting and something that we really need to look more closely into and how did we get ourselves to this point and since i was doing my master's degree in international law i decided to do my uh, thesis on this subject so i wrote about if humanitarian law actually applies to the libyan conflict because the libyan conflict is very very complex there are so many parties that got themselves somehow involved in it. And then from there, I built up into what happened in the conflict itself, how we got to the part of so many prisoners getting involved and what the solution to this problem could be. Thank you very much, Fatma. And to give our audience a quick plug, your chapter is one of many brilliant commentaries by young Libyans. The volume was published last December in cooperation with Brookings Institution Press, and more information can be found on our website for those that are interested. In addition, I encourage all of you to stay tuned as we will soon announce an Arabic edition, which will be published by Al Jazeera Center for Studies in Doha. So, Fatma, I'd like to turn now to your thoughts on Libya today, particularly given your background as a lawyer. What are your thoughts on achieving justice and reconciliation in Libya? In addition, what are the legal dynamics that are necessary to achieve this? Mm -hmm. So, the first thing that we need to keep in mind that 
Reconciliation is a very complex term and it means different things to different people and that we need to make sure that all of us are on the same page and have the same idea about what we're talking about. Reconciliation is not just a goal, it's, it's a process that parties to any conflict need to, to go through. We need to build trust and try to create a stable and non-violent coexistence. This would involve several, several routes that need to be taken, such as dialogues between the parties to the conflict, truth commissions, judicial processes, restitutions, compensations. These are some of the things that may take place in any reconciliation problem uh, process. The problem with reconciliation is that it's very often delayed what usually happens in post-conflict scenarios is that in the aftermath of a violent conflict um, and under the urge of, uh, like under the urgent political pressure that we need to establish some type of democratic structure, politicians usually scare away from the idea about acknowledging a painful past of somehow. Sure. And this delays reconciliation or doesn't give enough like emphasis to it. Mm. Some people would think that facing those residual or un unresolved feelings may endanger the new political structure, but it's the other way around. If we don't actually come to terms with the past, we can't guarantee that it will not come back again to haunt us or hurt mm. the society again. Reconciliation doesn't have like, there's no universal model for it. We can look around the world and there are unfor unfortunately a lot of um, non-international conflicts going on and a lot of reconciliation processes happened. We can like Rwanda, Uganda, Nicaragua, we can look a lot to a lot of countries, but those models might have worked in that country. That doesn't mean that they will work in Libya. Each country fu uh, functions in a different way. Each society has their own, um, let's say, privacy to it. And what we need to do is that we need to take what, what we see would work for us from each of those experiences and implement it in Libya. In the speak of reconciliation, there's this always like, if I may say a fight or between a conflict between what's more important, justice or peace. So do we prosecute first or do we give amnesty and wait for things to settle down and then think about the process of justice? But is it really peace if justice wasn't there, Johnny? Hmm. Can we... Can we really achieve justice? Can we really achieve peace without justice? I don't think so. And here comes the issue in Libya actually, is that we don't have a criminal just justice system at the moment that is actually capable of dispensing any type of fair and effective trial. And this is the issue. And any type of trial that it might provide is either going to be inadequate 
or very biased. And our panel system, like penal system, is not adapted to, to handle the large scale atrocities we, we witnessed in this war. So I think the, the only way we can start the reconciliation process is fixing the judicial system. Sure. Because if there's no justice, there's no peace. This is a very universal mantra for a reason. <laughs> the society, but like before that, the society in itself should be accepting to the idea of reconciliation and coexisting. And that does not mean that people that were wronged need to forget and forgive suddenly. That's not going to happen. Reconciliation comes over time. Victims need to be given enough time to, to absorb what just happened. You can't just expect somebody that lost an arm or lost eyesight or lost a loved one, a parent, a son, to just forgive the other party. That's, that's not going to happen easily. But we, what we are asking here is those, that those parties need to accept the fact that in order to move forward, we need to first of all forgive ourselves, forgive each other as a society, not as individuals. Because that's the only way to move forward. What would your message be to both the newly formed interim government and Libyans from every walk of life on how they can carry these things out? What we're asking from the government, and this is the most important thing, is compensations and restitutions. Johnny, there are people that have been without homes for 10 years now. There are people, people that are refugees and asylum seekers for 10 years now. And this is a huge issue. These people deserve to go back to their homes. People that are wounded and wronged by war deserve to be compensated somehow. And this is the job that the government has in front of it. And it's not an easy job. The government needs to do something, needs to give some type of incentive for anybody that is willing to be part of the reconciliation process in order to get people to be more willing to be part of it. The government needs to focus on the education system because where there's lack of education, where there's ignorance, there's always crime and there's always corruption. And if we have corruption, we're never going to get to that state of coexistence and stableness that we're looking for. And the last thing that I want to um, mention, since we're talking about legal dynamics, is that we should implement laws and regulations that criminalize tampering with the reconciliation process or anything that threatens it in any way. And I believe that would be the core of it because there are some people that are gonna try to, to mess with what's going on. And that's, that is what we need to focus on stopping. Thank you, Fatma, for these thoughts. 
you know, what, what you said about this being a societal process rather than an individual process really stuck with me. And I think it's a great segue to talk about uh, an, an important member of that society, which is the diaspora abroad. You yourself are a member of the Libyan diaspora, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the role of the internationally educated and active diaspora is in this situation. What can those abroad do to help Libya in the best way possible? Well, to be honest, um, there's not much that we can actually do, but what we can do, the, the little that we can do, I believe can have a great impact. The first thing is spreading awareness and spreading the knowledge that we have, that we gained from being abroad, from the education that we, we've been through, from the experiences, from the democratic countries that we lived in. Um, a platform like this is giving us a voice to speak. This podcast is giving me a voice to talk about a way for our country to reconcile. If just one person in Libya listened to what I just said, I believe for me that's enough. At least one person would understand what reconciliation really means, at least in my point of view, and might start thinking in that way, in a way that puts the victim first, in a way that puts forgiving first. You know what I mean, Johnny? Like awareness is the most sure, important. Sure. If we can bring our ideas together as part of the, like if all the diaspora can bring all their ideas into Libya, then that's enough. Libya is a, is a closed society and this is our job to, to try to open it up a bit. Um, another thing that may be a bit cliche, to be honest, is donations. As much as I would like to say that um, restitution and helping those displaced is, is the government's job, which it is, but it, that's gonna take a lot of time. And I believe as a society, we have an obligation to help those in need. And being abroad, there's so little one can do. And if just giving a bit to help somebody go back home, is gonna help, then be it. And another thing, and I believe this may be as important as the other two, while it's the easiest one, is just to be a good person abroad and represent your country properly. If each of us actually put in their mind that I am representing Libya, people looking at me would say, oh, this is what Lib Libyans are like then that's really good. And that's enough. Like, if you don't want to do something else, then just be a good person. <laughs> Let people see what Libyans are really like. Good people, nice people, because what they see in the media is just war and conflict. And, and we need to try to change that picture that we are being previewed as. Well, we're closing in on time, but I want to turn to just one final issue, and that's the representation of women in Libya. As you know, Fatma, the UN has insisted on a quota when it comes to women's participation in all levels of the Libyan government. Do you believe this is going to be hard to achieve? 
in addition, how do you see young women taking up leadership in politics and industry in a society known to be more conservative? And finally, do you have any encouragements for young women in Libya today? Okay, so, okay, hear me out on this one. I'm not usually in favor of quotas in like parliamentary or governmental participations. I usually insist that representation should be based on qualifications and capabilities. And I believe like most people would believe so. But in a very conservative, very tribal society, if I may say, such as the Libyan society, female involvement in the political field is very limited. Having a quota would be a good place for as like as a start for women, especially in the parliament. And I think there's a misunderstanding when it comes to quota, and that's why a lot of people are against it at the moment in Libya. It's not about electing women only because they're women. Rather, it's it's an opportunity for qualified women to have an equal chance to run. And I say equal because in our society, women are rarely perceived to be equal in men to men, especially in politics. They will not have the chance otherwise to be part of the political field. So in my opinion, the quota here is a great place, is a great place to start. It will prove that, that there are women that are just as adequate as men, if not more. And maybe once this idea, once the notion of women in politics is set in the Libyan mind, we can lift the quota. It will not be needed anymore because quota is meant to be a temporary measure to resolve the inequalities that women face in political representation. And that's why I would say that it's a great step that the UN took. Um, it may be hard to be accepted, but it's been implemented and well, they're gonna have to accept it some way. Sure, um, sure. And usually, uh, Libyan politicians are viewed in a very bad way, but this new interim government showed something very different. Our new Minister of Foreign Affairs, Najlal Mangouche, is doing a great job. People are viewing her as a very strong, independent woman. Even those that are not liking her policies, even those hating on her, they're not changing her views. What I like about her is that she's keeping her head high and she's not looking at people that are speaking because what they're saying is not actually affecting her. And that's what I want to say to, to women that want to go into politics or little girls that want to grow up and be anything, anything important in Libya. Just ignore it, ignore whatever is being said because people will always talk. People will always have an opinion and their opinion shouldn't matter. And my encourage, encouragement to women is going to be my encouragement to any other underrepresented group in Libya, to any other minority in Libya. If we do not come forward and speak up and take what we deserve, no one will do it for us. No one will give it to us. And women represent half of the society. This is a known fact. 
if we marginalize half of the society, imagine what will happen. And it's in Libya's best interest that we actually represent ourselves. It's in Libya's best interest that half of the society say what they want, give their ideas, their objectives, their aspirations, because I believe that will lead into something great. Thank you again, Fatma, for the powerful message that you've shared with us today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. For those of you of the Islamic faith, I wish you a wonderful Eid. And uh, we'll see you next time on our Next Generation Emergent Leaders in Libya podcast series. Have a good rest of your day.